more important than Lagbomer itself and uh, the bonfires and should you go to Meron or not and all sorts of things like that. I think the real message for any holiday, but especially something like Lagbomer, which is not really even so clear if it is a holiday or not, it's a very murky day. But the real question for anything we have is what you take with you, what can you take with you uh, after the holiday. I would say this even uh, about uh, Pesach and about Rosh Hashanah. Right? You know, it's not just uh, enough to, uh, to go through those holidays. We want those holidays to go through us. We want to be able to take something with us. What's the lasting message? Um, and that's really my question uh, that I'd like to discuss uh, this afternoon, this morning, is, you know, especially in Israel in particular, but now it's become even more popular throughout the world, we associate the experience of uh, Lag Omer with the fires and the bonfires. Uh, somebody from the shul, his uh, in-laws are visiting, and I had asked him a while back, like, you know, when are you leaving? When are you going back? And he's saying, Tel Shavu. He says, no, we can't. We wanted to see what Lag Omer is like in Israel, you know, uh, in a place where they don't seem to care about fire safety or other, you know. Uh, uh, anyway, so... You know, the fires, and especially if you have young kids or grandkids, you know this is a very big experience for them. Um, but the real question is, you know, what happens after the fire? Right? Maybe, Mirza Shambu, for together next year, maybe we'll have a shear on why the fire, Shumbar Yochai, what's all of it? That's not today's shear. But the real question is, what happens after? What is the lasting message of Lag Lomer? That's really what I'd like to discuss. And I think there's more than one answer to the question, but for our purposes today, we're going to focus on that question with one answer. I'm not saying there aren't other answers and other interpretations or other messages of Lagomer, but I'd like to share with you one in particular which uh, I think is very beautiful and very resonant uh, to me. So let's begin, if you have the source sheets, uh, with source number one. And this is the source that we have in Halacha, the Lagomer is anything. And that is the Shulchan Aruch and the Ramah. This is uh, as part of Hilchos Pesach, that's where the, the, the Shulchan Aruch brings down Sefirat Omer, because obviously we start counting during Pesach, and says Shulchan Aruch as follows, top of the page. Noagim shalolisa isha bein Pesach la'atzeres adlag ba'omer. So without explaining why, we don't know why yet, but says the Shulchan Aruch, there's a minog, we don't make weddings during Sefirah. But not the whole Sefirah, only until Lag Omer. After Lag Omer. You can have a wedding. Now why? So the Shukhanach brings down one reason. We'll see the original source in a few minutes, but the Shukhanach already tells us that this has to do with the death of the students of Rabbi Akiva. In other words, the Shukhanach is explaining why is Sfiris Omer all of a sudden a sad day, a sad period of time. It should either be parv and neutral, or maybe even happy, between Pesach and Shavuos. The Ramban analogizes Sfiris Omer to like a chalamoid, bridging the two holidays at the beginning and the end. Like what should be so sad about Sfiris Omer? Because something happened in history, the death of the Rabbi Kiva, and we'll get to that in a few minutes. Right now, let's just focus on the practical part. You're not supposed to get married, it's a, it's a sad time, but only until Lag Bomer. What happened, Vosephus Lag Bomer, we don't know yet. Adds the Ramah, in case you missed the point, because there's other things the Shacharach mentioned about engagements, and all sorts of things which I'd include. You should know, after Lag Bomer, it's permissible. Permissible, excuse me. Next line. Shachar has another halacha about the Sphira. Noagim shall listaper ad lag ba'omer. We also don't get haircuts. Okay? And in many communities, for men, that includes not shaving as well, but certainly men and women don't get haircuts during the Sphira. And all of a sudden now, as the Shachar, why would be lag ba'omer different? Whatever the reason why we're sad, what happens at lag ba'omer? So says the Shachar, we don't know what his source is, we don't know what the basis of this is, but says the Shachar, Sha'omrim, they say, you know, you know, like they, who's the they? You know, the, the, the royal they, the royal we, they say, Sha'omrim, 
She'az pasku milamus. That's when Rabbi Kiva's students stop dying. Okay? That's what we have in Shulchan Aruch in short. Adds the Ramah, end of the line. It's not just that you can get married or get a haircut. What if, you have, what if you're already happily married? <laughs> you're getting married. Or uh, what if you don't necessarily want to get a haircut? That's, that's all. This adds the Ramah. Mar bimbo ktsas simcha it's not just, these are not just uh, what, how you quote-unquote celebrate Lag Bomer. The weddings and the haircuts are a symptom. They're a symptom of the fact that, in fact, this is supposed to be a day that is happy, happier than usual, and should be celebrated somewhat. And as an expression of that, we don't say Tachnun. If you ask the average man, they will tell you that the Simcha is that we don't say Tachnun. That's not clear for, that's not what the, the that's not what the Ramah means. The Ramah means because it's happy, therefore we don't say Tachnun. But for some reason, I can't speak to if women are plagued by this disease, but many men have a disease in which they hate Tachnun. For no good reason. Trust me, there is no good reason. So there's no Simcha in a shul, like uh, when all of a sudden, unexpectedly, there's no Tachnun. I have to tell you, it's so sad, but absolutely spectacularly true. Uh, so when people, uh, so anyway, that's a little late sonus. But be that as it may, this is the basis we have in Shulchan Aruch, for the idea that Lagba Omer is anything. The context for Lagba Omer, again, in this presentation, I am not, uh, no one should accuse me of being anti-mystical or heretical, but there's no reference to Rabbi Akiva, there's no Zohar, there's no bonfires, none of that's here in the Shulchan Aruch. Shulchan Aruch tells us that you'll need to know two things about Sirius Omer. You need to know about the Svira, and then you can appreciate the, Om- the Lagba Omer. Svira became a sad period, because of what happened to Rabbi Kiva's students, which we're going to get to in a minute. And somehow, we have a tradition, but there was a respite. The tragedy that made Svira sad stopped or paused, different interpretations, on Lag Bomer. Therefore, all of a sudden, Lag Bomer becomes a happy day, a mini quasi-holiday, which is expressed by weddings, haircuts, nowadays music, etc. Okay? So that's just Aleph Bates. Now, the Shukharach assumes certain things, like there's this thing called the death of Rabbi Kiva's students, and that it was during this time of year. How did the Shukharach know that? So that is the famous Gemara, we've seen it in the past, but let's review it briefly in source number two. Says the Gemara very famously, that Rabbi Kiva had, Shneim Asr Elef Zugim Talmidim. He had 12,000 pairs of students, or 24,000 students. And the Gemara describes, in case you were wondering, like how big is that hall? Like, you know, the mirror is pretty big, but it would have to be like quadruple to have 24,000 students. And even the mirror is like eight buildings or something in Lakewood. I mean, it's not conceivable. So the Gemara says, no, it doesn't mean like literally they were all in sheer every day. It means that from the north to the south, throughout this huge swath of the country, there are people who consider themselves Talmidim Rabbi Kiva. They somehow, I don't know, they got the WhatsApps, they were in the chat, uh, they read his Svarim. They were Talmidim of Rabbi Kiva. He was the dominant Torah influence. And yet, despite this incredible, uh, almost, you know, uh, empire of Torah, Kulan Mesu Beperek Echad, they all died in some short period of time. How come? They didn't treat people with respect. We've had, I think last year we gave a Siras Omar Shir, we discussed this Gemara in depth. How could it be, Rabbi Kiva of all people? You have to kamocha. What does it mean that they didn't get covered? And just because you didn't give cover to someone, that means you should die. And that's not good to have chutzpah, uh, not a derakarat. But since when is that a capital punishment? Capital crime, I mean. So that's not our topic today, but we discussed that in previous years. But let's continue for what is important for us. 
Continues the Gemara. When these 24,000 students died, as astounding as that is, you shouldn't think, well, listen, it's sad, but you know, the other 24,000 kept on learning. No, 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 says the Gemara. Ha'olam hayashamim. The world at that moment became desolate of Torah. There, a, there were no books. There were no websites. There were no recordings. There were no Torah tapes. All of Torah in those days was pretty much oral. And now all the scholars of the world, virtually it seems, all died. So there was no Torah in the world. And in a very real way, there was a threat that Torah would become extinct. If, you have a gen- if, you have a, if the whole Torah is based on student to t- teacher to student, in an oral tradition, well, what do you do if there's no more students? Right? Torah is going to die with Rabbi Kiva? What's going to happen? So Gemara continues and tells us, we don't know exactly how quickly this happened, but relatively quickly. Rabbi Kiva traveled south, and he found that there were still a few rabbis, young students, who had not been killed by the plague, or however they got killed. And Rabbi Kiva restarted. He taught them. And who are the five? So who are these students? So the Gemara tells us, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yehuda, Rabbi Yossi, Rabbi Shimon, that's Rabbi Shimon Bar-Yachai. that is a reference to Rabbi Shimon Bar-Yachai, but nothing about the Zohar or, or, or Lag Bomer. The Rabbi Lazar ben Shemua. Okay, five great Tanayim who we know end up, ended up becoming great scholars of their own right, contributing to the Mishnah, etc., etc. And therefore the Gemara tells us, these five were the linchpin. They rebuilt Torah. Haim Haim, He'emidu Torah Ososha. They were the ones who saved Torah and that dire moment. And now is not the time, but just to be aware, uh, Rav Asher Weiss always likes quoting this, that if you look, we have a tradition that the main person in the Mishnah was Rabbi Meir. And all of Torah Shabbat Peh basically, it wasn't just these were like five big students that all deserved like a, pr- a prize of graduation. It was way bigger than that. All of Torah Shabbat Peh that we have, the Mishnah and the Tosefta and the Medrash, all of that basically comes from these five being able to resurrect and then continue, uh, and continue Torah. Now, as a PS, the Gemara tells us, you know, you just said that the, this incredible story, it's almost, it's almost unbelievable. That's how incredible it is. You just said that it all happened in some finite period of time. Perek Echad. When was all that? PS. Kula Meisumi Perek This occurred during the seven weeks from Pesach to Shavuot. So we call the Omer period. That's exactly when they died. So now we go back to the, to the Shulchan Aruch, source number one. So the Shulchan Aruch is telling us, even though this is not explicit at all in the Gemara, what the Gemara is telling us, what the Shulchan Aruch is telling us, and the Shulchan Aruch didn't make it up, there were other sources even before the Shulchan Aruch who said it, but no one really seems to have an authoritative source for it, that even though the Gemara describes them as having died over this multi-week period, Evidently, they stopped dying, or there was a pause, or there was some respite, if not complete Yeshua, from this terrible death that all the students were having, specifically on Lagba Omer. So now we have the background for the Shulchan Aruch. How is it that Sviras Omer, which should have been a neutral to positive seven-week period, also became a sad period? And now we know why Lagba Omer flips that on its head. Now, as you know, there are various different minhagim. Again, this all comes from the fact that it really is opaque. 
It's not so clear what happened on Lag Omer, when did they die. But there are different minhagim. Some people keep what we call first sphera. Some people we call second sphera. All has to do with different theories of, well, when were they dying? Does that mean that they only died until Lag Omer? Does that mean they died for 33 days, but at some point 33 days over the course of the... All sorts of different theories, and that is allowed for different minhagim. Or e- even the difference between Sfarim and Ashkenazim. Did you, could you take a haircut already yesterday, or could you not take a haircut until today? That's the difference between Sfarim and Ashkenazim. All of these things emerge out of a basic point. And on the one hand, we know, again, we should say we know, we have an assumption. It's not exactly clear where it comes from. We have an assumption uh, that the Shulchan Aruch endorses that some respite happened on Lagba Omer, but since we don't really know exactly what that means, when exactly they die, broadly in the seven weeks, but it was at all, seven, all, all 49 days, only some of the days, we don't really know any of that. But somehow during this period there was this horrible tragedy, and to some extent, if not completely, it stopped, or some pause on Lag Omer. This is the idea of not only why Sphere was sad, is sad, even though you don't get that when you look at the Chumash, last week we read Parsha Emor, there's nothing about being sad in Sphere. Just you bring a carbon and you count. But it became sad historically. Now just as an analogy, I'll just point out, if you take a look at source number three, something very interesting, which is that the Gemara Antanis tells us that something like this happened in an earlier stage of history. After the chet of the Meraglim, of the spies, when the Jewish people of that generation were punished, that they weren't going to be able to go into Eretz Yisrael. So the Gemara basically describes how pretty much every year of those 40 years, there would be a certain period during the year where a certain number of the men would die as a punishment. They don't all die at once. They died out over the 40 years. So the Gemara tells us that that more or less happened on Tisha B'Av. And the Gemara actually says, we know that there's a, a quasi-holiday called Tuba'av. And the Gemara says there's different reasons why the 15th of Av was a happy day. It was a day of Shiduchim, and the women would uh, dance in front of the men. Whatever, interesting things about Tuba Av. But one of the answers, says the Gemara, source number three is, Yom Shekalu Bo Mesei Midbar. That's the day, that's not, it's Machlokas how to understand this. Some say it means that literally, they stopped dying in the, 39, in the last year on Tuba Av. Others say no, they stopped dying on Tisha B'Av in the last year, but they didn't know it was completely over until Tuba Av when, whatever. The details are not important right now. But the idea is, what I'm trying to share with you, is that we have a similar phenomenon. We had enormous tragedy. Here it wasn't over seven weeks, so it was over 40 years of people dying. And again, it's like you got a death sentence from the doctor. You knew you were going to die, right? If you were a man at that age, you knew you're not making it into Israel. So each year, am I going to be this year? Am I going to be next year? You didn't know. But you're on, you're, on, you're on a clock. And that finally, so that's context. And then we have finally the respite was on Tubab, and that becomes, as the Gemara itself tells us, Lohaya Yamim Tovim Li Yisrael. It becomes a super happy day, Tubab. So that's like a paradigm for what happens much later in history when you have these 24,000 students die. There's a respite from that, just like Tubab became a quasi holiday, so then Lagba Omer becomes a, uh, a quasi holiday. Now, one last point, and then I'll take a question. I just thought this was a little bit of a knech before we get to the main part of the shir, which is starting in source number five, but a little bit of a connection, which is, why would it be, if you assume that they stopped dying on Lag Omer, vas epis Lag Omer, it just was just, you know, 24,000 divided by 32, and that ends up like, why, why was it Lag Omer? Is there anything special about Lag Omer? It's just random. 
So I thought my whole life, and I probably still in my gut think it was just somewhat inexplicable or random. That's when they stopped dying. It's not when they have to stop dying. But Rav Asher Weiss, he's not the only one who, ha- who tries to figure this out. Rav Asher Weiss was bothered by this. Like, what's that? Piece? Why all of a sudden, Dafka on the 33rd day, did they stop dying? So he has a theory, um, which is maybe it's part of a broader discussion, which maybe we'll even dedicate future shurim in, 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 at some point. But there is an idea, I've spoken about it in other contexts, I just don't know if I ever did it in this lady's year, of um, that in Perkyavos, in the sixth parak, there's a list of 48 attributes that memches kinyane Torah. 48 attributes you need in order to master them to really become a scholar of Torah. A number of years ago, I thought this would be a great project, and literally for the entire Sira, every single day, I recorded another shir on all 48. The shir were only 20 minutes long, but as any of you who have ever done any teaching know, to prepare a good 20 minute shir takes at least a few hours to prepare. And without missing a day, I did it for seven straight weeks. I didn't realize what I was getting myself into. But once I started, I couldn't stop. So it's become like a pet project of mine. And then over the years, I keep on buying more and more books on that topic. And I do have a dream. I'm going to speak the dream into reality so that for the next few years, every time you see me, you'll ask me, and then maybe it'll actually get me to do it. I have a dream of turning it into a book. Okay, there I've said it. I don't think I ever shared that really publicly. But I do have this dream, and I don't just want to take the old shroom that I did. I want to make it even more scholarly. So I have these books I keep on buying more and more on the topic. So halavai, halavai one day. But be that as it may, again, now that I've said it, now I have to do it, right? Um, halavai. Um, there are these 48 categories. And there's a tradition. By the way, I already wrote the introduction to the book. Because no, I, I published an article, which I even wrote. Um, you know, this, I hope this will become you know, a part of a larger exploration with a chapter on each of the Midos, but this is an introduction to the whole concept of the 48 Kinyani Torah. So one of the things I discussed there, which Rav Asher Weiss mentions here, is that there's a tradition, some people say from Rav Yisrael Salanter and from others, that you should study, one, you should try to, not just study, you should try to internalize one of these things, one of these Midos, every one of the days of Sirius Omer. It's not a coincidence, 48, 49, so what do you do with the extra day? That's a discussion I've had, not for now, but the numbers are close enough. It can't be a coincidence. They had this idea that every day you take one of the Memches Kinyanim and you learn one of those and you internalize it. So says Rav Asher Weiss in source number four, why all of a sudden did the, the Rabbi Kiva's students stop dying on Lagba Omer? So he says, well, we know why they died. Right? They weren't being respectful, they weren't being menshluch to each other. So he says, if you start from the beginning of the, the 48 things mentioned in Perkei and you go till 32. You know what 32 is? Look at source number 4. Yom Lamed Bet Who can I get? Wouldn't you know it? Do you believe in coincidences? 32 is you should love your fellow Jew. And presumably implied in that is to treat people respectfully. To be no hey kavod zebazet. So suggest, suggest, again, I, I, you know, gun to his head. Does Ravash really believe this? I don't know. Maybe he does. I'm not saying he doesn't. But at least he suggests as a possibility that maybe that's why they stopped dying on Lagba Omer. Because they found, on day 32, they did a tikkun, so to speak. They did tshuva. They internalized the lesson of Oivah Sabriyaz. And once they finally internalized the lesson, then the plague stopped and they stopped dying. Whether he's right or he's wrong, it's an interesting theory. Um, but that's, Ad Khan is kind of our introduction for what's the background, why is Sfirah Omer sad? What's I got to do? You don't see that from the Torah. So one main theory, it's not the only theory, but the main theory is Rabbi Kiva's students. 
and Lagba Omer, whatever exactly this means is not important for today, but more in some form or another, that's when the dying stopped, that's when the plague stopped, uh, they got a spiritual vaccine, so to speak, or maybe there's just no students left to, to kill anymore, it's not clear, but either way, it stopped, and now Lagba Omer is happy. Okay, yes? I have another theory. Lagba Omer is Yudchet Iyar, Yudchet is Chai, Maybe that's... Could be, okay. That's what's a schooler, maybe. Halavai, halavai. Anyway, I want... Yeah, quickly, yeah. I was just going to ask, like, shouldn't it be a Saturday? Oh, good, it's a perfect segue. Excellent, excellent, excellent. Okay, perfect, perfect, perfect. So, I just want to point out, again, this is so we can have future shurim. Hopefully we'll be together for many years learning Torah. There are different... There are other, there are other theories as to what Lagbomer is happy, what Lagbomer is special about. There is a theory about the relationship of Shurim Bar Yochai, Maybe that'll be worth at least one shear in the future. There's other theories, people connected to the mun. Uh, people can, there's three or four different theories over the centuries about what makes Lag Bomer special. Okay? But the one that's in the Gemara, or at least in the Rishonim, or some Rishonim based on the Gemara, and it's in the Shachanarach, let's put it that way, I can say that, I can say that definitively. Where the Shachanarach got it from is a separate question. The Shachanarach says, I got nothing to do with Shurim Bar Yechai, nothing to do with anything else. It has to do with the Rekiva's students stop dying. Okay? Comes along a brilliant member of our shir, or if you prefer, the pre-Chadash, source number five, one of the great, great commentaries on Shulchan Aruch, and he asks what they might call in yeshiva, a bomb kasha. Like an explosive question. We just keep on regurgitating this, we keep on reading the Shulchan Aruch year after year, oh yeah, Lagbomer, the Rebbe students died, it's so happy, yeah, 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 let's have a bonfire. Or when I was a kid, I was telling my kids, they didn't understand why, I don't really understand either. When I was a kid, we had school in Lagbomer, we had color war. Yeah, I don't know. Anyway, so ask the pre-chadar, source number five. He quotes the Shulchan Aruch, he says, I don't understand. Why should we be happy on Lag Bomer? If it's because they stopped dying? What's the big deal? There was no one left to kill. Again, I don't want to make it too personal, but anyone, everyone has experienced loss on some level. Imagine, wow, you know, so-and-so was sick, or different people died, and when they finally stopped dying, now I'm happy? That's not a time to be happy. They stopped dying. Great. But they, didn't, they died. There's no magical ending to the story. They didn't come back to life. They died. Because they stopped dying, because there was no one left to kill, that's why we're happy? Yeah. Why is that simple? Yeah. Maybe because they internalized. Um, let's say, let's say, let's say, Who, who's the they go? The students. Okay, so well, well, it's not clear who's left. We have the five left in the South, right? Okay? Again, again that they stopped dying, maybe because the Korah of Usher Weiss speculated, the Dichuva, they were Matakein, maybe. But the Prichadash's question is powerful. On its own. And again, I, you, you always have to love um, questions that take you know, the truth that everyone has just accepted and just says, well, one second, time out. <laughs> you keep on saying it every year, but Rabbi, it doesn't make any sense. Why would we be happy? You know what I'm saying? It's like, I would have been happier if, you know, I'm, I'm happy they stopped dying. I'd be happier if they, I don't know, never started dying. Like, why is this a happy thing? That's a pre-Khadish's question. So, you know, it's, it's not a heretical question. No worries. It's good. It's a very firm question. It's a pre question. 
Right? He's questioning the Shulchan Aruch in, in earlier sources, but it's a good question. So look what the Prechadar says, source number five. The Efshar, Shasimchahi, Al Osam Talmidim, Shahosif Acharkach, Rabbi Kiva, Shalomesu Ke'elu. He says, You're misreading it. Now we're going to spend the rest, the rest of the Shir, we have a half an hour, the rest of the Shir is just going to be to understand this. This is really deep, we need to unpack it. But he says, so what I'm about to say is just the beginning, not the end. But his basic point is, which we now need to really appreciate, is that we've misunderstood. The se- yes, they stopped dying, but that's not the celebration. As we just said, that doesn't make any sense. The celebration isn't that those students stopped dying. The celebration is that the five students started learning. It's not, the celebration is not about the past. The celebration is about the future. Again, let's read it together again inside. Source number five. Efshar shasimchahi al osam talmidim shehosef. Acharkach Rabbi Kiva shalom esu ke'elu. Shehosef Rabbi Kiva, excuse me. Right? The real simcha is not that they stopped dying. They stopped dying because there's no one left to kill. The real simcha is that when they stopped dying, Rabbi Kiva started over with the five. Okay? Now, this source is also um, strengthened with another source. The Brichadosh was one of the great Svarti Gedolim. And another one, of course, very famous, was the Chida, source number six. The Chida, Chaim Yosef David Azulai, who I think had something like over 100 Svarim or something. He's one of the most prolific authors we've ever had. So in one of his Svarim, also commenting on the Shulchan Aruch, he says as follows, source number six. Biyom umasha osim simcha lag ba'omer, efshash der Kiva haya klagadol batorah. Right? Rabbi Kiva was the man. And he leaves out the word Elif. That's not a typo on my part. This is the original. I'm just giving you the original. But 24, meaning 24,000 students. And they all died. And the whole world was barren. And then where it's underlined, Yom Lamed Gimel, Hitzchil Lishanos L'Rashbi, Rabbi Meir, Rabbi Yossi, etc. The Iker is not that they stopped dying on, the, on Lagba Omer. It's that Lagba Omer was the first day of the new school year. Lagba Omer was the first day of the new yeshiva in the south. Lagba Omer was Rabbi Kiva started teaching the new students. And it was with this great, you know, uh, light and inspiration that they brought back the Torah. That's why it's simcha. That's why it's a happy day. Not happy just because they stopped dying. It's happy because there was a new beginning. Now I will mention in passing, he is one of the earlier sources who says, oh yeah, and by the way, it's also the yard side of Rabbi Shem Bar Yechai. But that's clearly not his main thrust, and that clearly had nothing to do with the Shulchan Aruch, or the Gemara, right? So, here we have, between the Chida and the Precharash, a whole new way of looking at this. The celebration of Lagba Omer was not that they stopped dying, per se, it was that once we could kind of catch our breath, you know, imagine for a moment, if you could, the really, really dark days of the early part of the pandemic. Now imagine, it wasn't just that like, you were trying to catch your breath like from being traumatized being in your house, Imagine you were a frontline healthcare worker. I, I know people who are doctors on the front lines. Uh, a friend of mine's wife is an ER, is an ER nurse, trauma nurse, you know, real trauma. <laughs> not, not only for the patients, but for the medical staff as well, right? So finally, all of a sudden, it's, you can catch your breath. Whoa. So apparently, finally after those 33 days or 32 days, so to speak, Rabbi Kiva can catch his breath. What's the simcha? Not that they stop dying. It's that when they had that pause, or end of the plague, or the pandemic, if you will, then Rabbi Kiva didn't just say, okay, I'm going to go on vacation out of Florida. 
you know, like everyone else from New York, I'm moving to Florida. Those not Zochet to move to Israel. Um, he actually started a new yeshiva. I guess that's Badarom, so maybe it was Florida, I don't know. Right? <laughs> maybe, maybe even he went to Boca, I don't know. Um, you heard about the, 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 uh, the tuition credits. Anyway, um, um, so it's a whole new perspective. It's not what we were thought from the Shulchan Aruch, it's not what we usually were brought, were brought up to, to understand. So now with that, I want to go one step deeper, and this is really the concept of the whole shir. What's so great even about that? What is really, on a deeper level, what are we really celebrating? What are we really celebrating? And more importantly, or to sharpen it, not just what are we celebrating now that we have this new insight, this new perspective. Going back to the topic of the year, the title of the year, I mean, how is that relevant to us? Is this just a commemoration? Or is there something deeper? And again, the lasting message of the original plague, of course, hopefully is, we should treat people with respect. You don't need me to tell you that's an obvious lesson. But what's the lasting lesson of Lagba Omer? Just that they stop dying? No lesson in that, and we're not even sure that's happy. Oh, no, the happiness is not just that they stop dying, but that Rekiva started teaching again. So I'm asking, let's try, so, okay, that's good to know. I didn't know that, now I know. The Gemara just said, he went to the south and he started teaching. The Chida and probably the Prichadr say, no, not just that he, he went to the south. It happened that day. Lagba Omer was opening, opening day of school year. Okay, that's good to know. As a commemoration, as a historical fact, maybe. What's the message? What's the religious message? What's the lasting message of that for us? For this, I want to go one step further and I want to share with you what I think is a profound game changer of an insight from the work Yalkut Me'am Loez. Yalkut Me'am Loez is a fascinating work. If I'm not mistaken, I believe it was from the 18th century. And basically, it came from a period where uh, Jews had to uh, run away. They eventually, I think, uh, were settled in Turkey, I think, but they'd run away from Sephardic lands. And they basically published an entire collection, which was a combination of medrash, Sukim, I think random, even Dinim, and maybe explaining the Rambam. But it's, it's really a collection a lot of Medrash, which was originally published in Ladino. Like Spanish, Hebrew, it's like, that's Yiddish for Sardin. Ladino. Since then, because I don't know how many people can still read that, it's been translated into Hebrew. And at some point when I was a kid, I know that Mosnaim, Arya Kaplan, the famous Rabbi Arya Kaplan, did an English translation. And there's like 30 volumes. It's a massive set. Yalkut Me'am Loes. Okay? So, the Yalkut Me'am Loes is on all of Torah and much of Tanakh. And he's commenting here, or this book is commenting, in source number 8, on the Pasuk in Koheles in Parakir Aleph. The Pasuk in Koheles says, Baboger Zara Ez Zarecha. Right? You have your children in the morning. It doesn't mean what time you should go into the hospital. Of course, it's a metaphor for when you're young. Right? You build your family, you have children when you're young. But, Don't just think, because I had, again, I'm not here to, this is not a family planning share. Uh, what's the right number of kids? But whatever number you thought you had in, when you were young, says the Apostle King Kohelis, don't just think, therefore when I get older, I'll just retire, and I'll just relax, and I'll just go on vacation. You should also still try to have even more kids. Right? Because you never know 
which is going to be the child that'll be the matzliach, which will be the child that in, in a different generation they might say will be the kaddishzager. Who's the one you can get the nachas from? Maybe it'll be the one. Maybe the ones you you gave birth to so far. Who knows? So keep on having children, and you know the more children you have, the more chances you have. Okay, that's I'm not here to get. This is not our topic. Family planning. Okay, this is not our discussion. But that's what the pasuk says in Kohelis. And in fact, this pasuk is quoted in Halacha for the idea that there's a mitzvah to have children even after you've had one boy and one girl. The Torah obligation, Doraisa, for children is to have one boy and one girl. I'm aware that it's not in our hands. The Gemara also knows that. It's ultimately up to Hashem. Right? There are people who have, I know families with eight boys or ten girls. Okay? You can only do your ishtadus. But the Gemara says, if you want to know when you officially fulfilled the mitzvah Doraisa, one boy and one girl. So that's all the mitzvahs you should, that, that you're done? I mean, you might be done, but I'm saying, from the halachic perspective, you don't have, there's no more mitzvah? So it says, yeah, midaraisa, there's no more mitzvah. Midarabanan, any mitzvah you have above and beyond, the, any children you have above and beyond the one boy and girl, that's this mitzvah of la'arev, altan chedecha. Okay? Fine. That's the background. But the medrash, as it so often does, and this is the Yalkut Shimoni's, uh, Ma'am Loe's version, the medrash, of course, takes this in a whole different direction. Look at this, this is unbelievable. It says, Yalkam Emlo is source number eight. This Pasuk relates not just to having children and family planning, it relates to Rabbi Akiva. His life's work, his legacy. Think about how many hundreds and thousands of hours he dedicated to teaching, to counseling, to being there for our students, for building up this massive Torah empire. His entire life's work, over and done, destroyed in a short instance. It's my Bible. Lo hitya'esh. What would a normal person do if they're Rabbi Akiva? What would a normal person do? I know what I would do. If I had been Rabbi Akiva, I would be crawled up in a ball like a baby and lied on the floor and cry till I had no more tears and I would just sit there until I eventually died. I do not think I'm made of the timber that would have required, allowed me to do what Rabbi Akiva did. It's overwhelming. A normal person, says the Medrash, would be Miyayish would give up hope, would be in despair. And who could judge them? It's like reminiscent, but maybe even worse, to some of the stories we've heard you know, from like the Great Depression, right? And people who had great businesses and fortunes, they were wiped out. They had a financial version of what Rabbi Kiva had. Some of them had resilience, and some of them never recovered, and some of them even took a jump. Who could blame them? They lost everything. And it t- again, it doesn't say, I mean, that's one extreme example. But yeah, people, they, build, they spend years building up a business. Something happens, they go bankrupt, they lose it. It's overwhelming. It's not just the money. It's the legacy, it's the life, it's the effort. People lose a family. Even people get attached to a house and pictures. Can you imagine a family? 24,000, Rabbi Kiyo's entire life, his entire project, wiped out in a short period. The normal thing to do would have been to give up, to fold it. Someone else can try. I'm done. But he didn't do that. Lohit Instead, 
Hosif laharbitz Torah. Vinet kaima Torahso. He rejuvenated, he recommitted, and he rebuilt. He started over. That's the godless of Rabbi Akiva. And that's the godless of Lagba Omer. It's not a celebration that he stopped dying. And the real celebration isn't just that happened to be the first day of class when he taught the new kids. No, the celebration, the real simcha, and the message for us is Lagba Omer is a holiday of resilience. The ability to face the most daunting challenges, the most painful disappointments, the most difficult, heartbreaking things that life can throw at you, and to get back up to fight another day. That is not stomp. That is not a small thing. Many people have been defeated by far less than what Rabbi Kiva was able to overcome. That, I think, is the deeper message. That's what the Chida, that's what the Prichadot are getting at. It's not just that it happened to be the first day of learning. It was the resilience that it took for Rabbi Akiva to do this. It's mind-blowing. It's unbelievable. The Medrash actually quotes uh, in the continuation, I won't read it inside, but he quotes based on a Gemara that similarly gives credit and connects to the story of Boaz. Boaz, we're coming up to, to Parshas, uh, to Shavuos, and Megillat Rut, and Boaz and Rut, says the Gemara that Boaz had 60 children. I believe I'm remembering this correctly. 60 children, 30 boys and 30 girls who all died in his lifetime. And not like his little kids, which is one kind of tragedy. He had already made weddings for them, and then they all died. And it was only after all of that that he met Rus, only after that that he married Rus, only after that that they gave birth to, as the Medrash here quotes, to Oved, who's the father of Yishai, who becomes the father of David. And as a result, the Yatsu Mimenu Yamod HaMashiach. In other words, the Medrash is putting these two completely unrelated phenomenon and historical epochs together. Think about Boaz based on this idea. Right? And this really brings to mind, again, it's hard to relate to the Rebekiva story per se, but when you hear about that story and that version of Boaz's life, I assume I'm not the only one whose mind immediately goes to... Exactly. Right? Think about those people. Right? My, my Bobby and Zadie were young. They, they were each other's... They both got, they got married in a DP camp. They're both survivors. But they were each other's first and only spouse. But I have an aunt, my, my mother's aunt and uncle were very, very close with. My uncle was a second marriage. His whole family, I don't know if he had a big family, I'm not sure he had one or two children, I'm not sure, but he had a wife, all killed. So many examples of this, I mean, countless examples of this. Most famous example, the Kleisenberger Rebbe. Right, a wife, and I think it was a 10 or 11 children. 11. I, that's Boaz. And what would a normal person do? Ice mensch, completely broken. Just the act of getting married another time, just the act of having children. It's unbelievable. If I'm not mistaken, I think uh, at, at a program that was done with the Michala uh, Holocaust Center last year, it was on Zoom, I actually quoted a little bit of this in my Tishabot presentation last year, Rav Lopiansky, the Rashi from Silver Spring, spoke, Rav Lopiansky's parents were Holocaust survivors, but really his father, was, his father, his father had been married and had children. And uh, I don't think his mother, had, if I remember correctly, had ever been previously married. 
And they got married, uh, I think already in America they got married. I think his father came to Israel a bachelor, uh, or widower I should say. But um, he spoke a lot about how hard it was for his father to get remarried. And how his father initially thought it was a betrayal of his first wife. The betrayal of his first And the spiritual gvura that it took to restart. Right? That's res- unbelievable heroism. That's resilience. So says the Medrash, that's what happened with Boaz. And the insight of the Yaakov Meamloi says, that's the Chedesh of Rabbi Akiva. He didn't lose a wife or children, but he, did, but he lost students. Right? Banecha elu talmidecha. And it wasn't just he happened to lose a student. If God forbid, you know, any Rebbe or any teacher who loses a student, I'm sure it'll be traumatic. But this wasn't just a student. And it wasn't just all the students because it was a big number. It was his whole legacy. Everything he had done in life. Down the tubes in a moment. And to come back from that, you know, maybe I'll go into the insurance business, you know. I think I'm going to try my hand at uh, technical writing. Or uh, maybe I'll be a tour guide. You know, I think a lot of people going to do that in Israel. Right? No, I'm going to go back and start a new yeshiva. And start again. It's unbelievable. That's a true, that is incredible, incredible simcha. And I want to add to this, that I think, if you think about it even for a little bit, and I think this, makes, this is not surprising, but it actually just makes it more powerful, this is the story of Rabbi Kiva's life. It's not a coincidence that Rabbi Kiva was able to do this. This is everything we know about Rabbi Akiva. If you had to pick one midah, if I was doing the biography of Rabbi Akiva, my title would be Resilient. After all, let's think of the origin. What's the origin story of Rabbi Akiva? So we know that source number nine, Avos Rabbi Nosan, right? the most famous Baal Tshuva in history. Until he was 40, says the Medrash, didn't know Aleph Beis. He would have been lost in Cheder. He would have been lost in Gan. Didn't know anything. And what turned around Rabbi Akiva? How come all of a sudden he dedicated his life? It wasn't NCSY, it wasn't Isha Torah, it wasn't, you know, someone tapped him on the shoulder at the Kotel. He saw that water, when it drips slowly, 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 wears away at a rock. Well, if that's what water can do to a rock, I can only imagine what a little bit of Torah, a little bit, little bit can do to me. He started learning and he became Rabbi Akiva. Now think about it for a second. Let's imagine, and I'm, this is not even imagine, this is actually very much real life, and I don't mean this chas shalom at all, obviously, to be judgmental. What I'm about to describe is normal. It's just that shows how abnormal, how extraordinary Bikiva was. You become a Balchuva at any age, let alone as a middle-aged adult at 40, right? We all know, either, I don't know, I don't know all of your families, there might be Balchuva in your families, and if not, you know Balchuva, we all do. Just to get through the sitter, if you weren't brought up with it can be hard and awkward in the beginning. And then you have people who are really dedicated and they go to Shurim and they learn. And let's be honest, with incredible effort that I can't even imagine, I can't, I, I can't even like wipe the floor, you know, I, I'm not even the dirt under their shoes. But with all that effort, you know, maybe with an art scroll they can get through something. And who could blame them? They became an adult built Balchuva? It's unbelievable. But what Balchuva do you know? Especially, I don't mean a, a Balchuva at 10 or 13. Yeah, although that's incredible, I'm minimizing that. But a 40-year-old Balchuva, who then becomes the Gadol Hador, who becomes the chief rabbi. I don't just mean that he was so brilliant that he accomplished that. That's not, a, that's not an interesting story at all. The interesting story is that he even tried. A normal person, this is not a criticism, but a normal Balchuva, all the people that we know, have much more modest ambitions, which is understandable, Ubatzedek. They just figured out even, 
But I'm going to try to, I'm not just going to you know, go to the Kirov Yeshiva. I'm not just going to go to the Balchuv Yeshiva. I'm not just going to go to the beginner's minion at Lincoln Square. All right? I'm going to be the top guy in the best year. I'm going to go away for 12 years and not come back until I have thousands of Talmudim. Get yeah, the intellectual accomplishment, the fact that he was obviously a good student, and st- all impressive. But not nearly as impressive as even having the dream, the audacity to dream. That's a different form of resilience. He didn't just give up. Oh, what can I do? At least I'll be from, but I'm going to be one of those from Amaratsu. That's the whole origin story. Or, maybe even more famously, if you turn over the page, the Gemara number 10, the famous Tishabav Gemara, the Gemara of the end of Masechet Makos, Rabbi Akiva is walking with the other Rabbanim, and they pass by, Harabayis. Right? All of a sudden, they see, Shual, Right? From the ruins of the holiest place in the base of Mikdash, a fox scurries out. Dramatically, vividly, showing the destruction and the desolation, the desol- how desolate the base of Mikdash is. Understandably, all the other rabbis are overwhelmed with grief. Avelis, they tear Kriya. And Rabbi Kiva smiling and laughing. And of course, they don't understand him. And he explains, okay, we're not going to read it all inside now, it's late. He goes through the whole thing, why he figures out, Jewish history is a package deal. And if you look at the various nevuos, the destruction was predicted and promised, and the nechama, and the Yeshua, is predicted and promised. Said Rabbi Kiva, Until I saw with my own eyes that the worst of the predictions, the worst of the promises of destruction were fulfilled, I couldn't be 100% sure that the best of the predictions and promises will be fulfilled. But now I know. And then the other Rabbanim famously said, Right? Because they were looking at the situation the way normal people would look at it. In the present, they were broken. They were depressed. Who could blame them? Halavai, we should all be on such a level. Right? We go to the Kotel and we're just excited for like, what time is the bar mitzvah from the couple from, you know, uh, Woodmere who's visiting the, you know, the, the Aliyah the Torah. We got invited to the few friends we still have from America and we go and we're between the arches and is it nine o'clock Holy Bagel and, you know, when I get so excited and I'm going to, you know, come to the world and... When's the last time we went to the Kotel and we were just overwhelmed with grief? Look what's up there. That's not what it's supposed to be. It's supposed to be a gold dome. So Halavai, we're on the level of these other Rabbanim. But Rebekah was on an even higher level. This is another form of resilience. He didn't get, he didn't, right? resilience is about not being stuck in the moment, but being able to see the possibility and the potential of a better future. And even in the moment, being so committed to that, seeing that so clearly, you have the strength, you have the calm, you have the fortitude to march forward to that other place. Again, something I'm not sure I have, it's something I work on all the time. But it's all, these are all the same story. 24,000 students, the fox in the base of Megdash, his humble beginnings. Every one of these things, the average person would have reacted in the exact opposite way of Yekiva. And time and time again, Yekiva is resilient. He sees the long term. He can see the, the big picture. And it's not enough to see it, he can internalize it, he can believe in it, and he can live with it even 
in the present. And this, to sum it all up, I said, is very, I think it was very beautifully expressed in source number 11 by one of my favorite contemporary svarim, Yareach Limo'adim. This is from one of the Rosh Hashivas of Lakewood, one of the current Rosh Hashivas in Lakewood, Rav Yerucham Olshin. And he writes in source number 11, in light of some of these sources that we've seen, that what's the true holiday of and Simcha of Lag Baomer? Kviyas HaSimcha hi ala uvda shalonit yayesh rabikiva b'matzavav. As we saw from the Yaakov Amloes, the real celebration here is Rabbi Kiva's resilience. He didn't give up hope. He didn't lose hope. I love that formulation. Yush is a Yetzir Hara. Which also means it's a choice. There might be good reasons to have Yush, just like there's good reasons to have other Yetzir Haras. But it's the Yetzir Hara. Yetzir Hayush. So just like any other Yetzir Hara telling us to do or not do whatever, we have to overcome our Yetzir Hara. Rabbi Kiva was a very strong Yetzir Hara to give up hope. And yet he was able to overcome that. Hitchil mechadash, he started afresh, he started anew. Lamid, tamidav, chadashim, etc., etc. And because of that, we're, we're here today. We wouldn't be here today without Rabbi Akiva's resilience and his strength. In theory, we could have still been here without his laughing at the shuwal. But we wouldn't have been here if he had packed it in after the 24,000. We'd be done. There'd be no Judaism anymore. It's all because of Rabbi Akiva. So this is something which I think is really, for me, transformative when it comes to Lagba Omer. And I think is something that not only can give us a fresh appreciation for Lagba Omer, but more importantly, this is something that could be a lasting message. Now we're not talking just about bonfires. Right? There's something very, very deep and very profound when it comes to Lagba Omer. And that is the spiritual heroism and ability to overcome obstacles and to be resilient that is the model of Rabbi Akiva we just have a few minutes left I just want to I won't go all through all the sources that we have here um, in fact sources uh, thir- 14 and 15 we did in a shear last year we had a whole shear on resilience last year um, and I included sources 14 and 15 and since 15 is like my favorite source ever so I figured if, if we had had time I was going to do it again with you but we can leave it it's okay but I want to share with you something I don't think I've ever previously shared which is in source 12 and 13 which is just the broader point which is what I want to just if you give, in, my, in our last five minutes I'll just say the following and that is that it's true and I really mean this and halavai by all of us that you need we all need to develop our Rebbe Kiva muscle when we're confronted with the great challenges. And there's nobody who doesn't have great challenges in life, right? You can't avoid the raindrops forever, right? Everyone has those in life. We hope they're not, right? there are some dark clouds and then there are some really, really dark clouds. So we hope we don't ever get tested in the, in the worst of ways. But we're all tested on some level and we all have great disappointments and uh, pains in life. And to be able to respond like Rabbi Kiva is not easy at all. That's why he deserves so much respect and admiration. But I want to point out, in addition to that, there's also um, the ups and downs with the lowercase u or uh, lowercase d. Not everything in life is either all is incredible, a wedding, a birth of a grandchild, or a Rachman on the opposite. There are a lot of things in the middle we just call daily life. And daily life has tons of mini ups and downs. And not only mini ups and downs like, you know, this week... I felt closer to my spouse, and next week I felt distant. Or this week I was doing better with my children, and next week I wasn't. That's true too. But even in your own relationship with Hashem, just our regular everyday mitzvah observance, there's nobody who's a straight line. I mean, as you know, the, the cliche goes, the only people who are flatlined, if you're dead, right? 
If you're alive, life's a roller coaster. Life's up and downs. I don't just mean life's ups and downs because sometimes you're healthier and sometimes you're more sick. Sometimes marriage is better, sometimes marriage is worse. I don't, that's all true. I mean just in your one-on-one relationship with Hashem. No one is always on fire for their davening and for their Yiddishkeit and for their learning. And hopefully, I don't know anyone, you know, for the most part, who's always depressed about that either. Right? We have our ups and our downs. And we have to realize that that also requires a Rabbi Kiva muscle to deal with. And the first person who noticed that way, way earlier than we would have thought, not a, a modern psychologist, not some guy who was like interviewed on behind the BMO or something like that. I'm not saying silly. Source number 12, Rabbeinu Tam. One of the greatest Baliatoslos, the Sefer Yashar. Source number 12. And he coined a phrase which Ravobi in source number 13 and Ali Shor made famous. This is Rabbeinu Tam back in source number, thir- in source number 12. You have to realize that there are what he calls Yimei HaSinah V'yimei HaAhava. There are days in life where we feel in love with Yiddishkeit, in love with Hashem. Oh, this is what I felt like I was back in seminary. This is how I felt when I was in the world. And the truth of the matter is, even in yeshiva or even in seminary, it's not flat either. I feel like weeks and months that are better than others. So Rabbi Tom says, certain parts of the day or the life are the Yemei Ha'ava. We're in love. He says, you know, there are other times we're the same person. It can be Yemei Ha'sinah. They're resentful, they feel angry, they feel alienated, distant, even hating it. They hate it. He says, you have to realize this is normal. This happens to everybody. End of the second line, source number 12. tamid. Everyone goes through this. This is inexorable. This is unavoidable. This is part of life. Look at the line below that. Tzarech l'bal ha'avodah l'hakir. Betchilas avodaso. You have to realize at the start. Ki ahava v'hasina nechamot shtem. You know, the two angels, so to speak, on our two shoulders, if you will. The two parts of our personality. They're constantly at war with each other. Pam hitzgaber ha'achat u'pam tigaber ha'shniyah. Sometimes it'll be a good day, it'll be a good week, it'll be a good month. You'll be excited to get up to Davin, you'll be excited to do this or that. You feel alive, you feel connected. And other times you won't. There's no one who can avoid that. It is built in, it is baked into the cake. And therefore, already from the beginning, you need to realize that. And therefore, if in the middle of some great experience, all of a sudden you start feeling the energy waning, don't give up. Or as we might say, use your Rabbi Akiva muscle. Be resilient. Don't give up. And what's one of the things you can do? This is a trick. A life hack. But this is so simple, but it's so key. Just keep on reminding yourself, this too will pass. It was inevitable, and it's also going to be temporary. It's inevitable that it'll come back also. Now we want to make it shorter than longer. But the idea that we should somehow get thrown completely off our game and totally upset and like, oh my gosh, the whole thing's not worth it. Because now I didn't have the best davening. Because, I don't know, today I was resentful that I have to cover my hair. Because last week I was resentful that I had to go to the mikvah. It was hard. It wasn't this magical moment that they tell you about in college classes. I'm I'm minimizing that. And trust me, I can give you as many male-centric examples too. I'm not minimizing it. 
But it's unavoidable. This is what life's about. Life's never going to be all good. It's not all Yimei Ava. Not says me. Says Rabbeinu Tam. You have to realize that's part of the game and therefore hold on tight. We'll just finish with reading what Revolbi says about this in source number 13. And I think Revolbi is so right. Forget all the other suggestions and I'm not saying they're not good or we couldn't come up with our own. There are other ways to hopefully do well and have, have uh, resilience. But the most simple trick for resilience is just this awareness. Just the knowledge that it's inevitable. Just the awareness that this is natural and part of life. That can neutralize and defeat a significant amount, if not all, of the depression or the disappointment. Because we have to realize that even when the Yitzhahara and the downtimes have got us by the collar and holding on tight, there's still no reason to give up. Here he throws in one more point at the end, and with this will end. It's not only that we should be aware that this is inevitable, this is natural, and therefore we could have expected it, we can also utilize it. Just like in the human body, this is my analogy, not his, but I think it's a, an apt one. Just like in the human body, when you have an infection, right, that's the doctor's best friend. Because now you know where the problem is, right? Only all of a sudden, when you see where the problem is, now you know that's how you help diagnose what the problem. Right? That when they don't know where the problem started, they can't diagnose the problem. They can see, oh, there's it. So too, when we have a downturn, it's not just that we can hold on tight until the wave crests. It's more than that. It's that if we're smart, we're really, really careful and introspective and self-reflective. It's those difficult times that are a little bit of a spiritual compass that show us what we need to work on and where we're not as solidified as we might otherwise be. If we didn't every now and then get sick, we wouldn't know what we need to work on. So even that knowledge is already on another level. The basic knowledge is, it will pass, hold on tight. My mother once said this with one of our children, it could be about any of our children, or any of our, when we were having some difficulties, she said, just hold on. Just hold on. Eventually there'll be that 1920 uniform that you love and have nachas from. You just gotta hold on now. So that's true about not only my children, I assume, uh, uh, but everyone has this at some point. But it's more than that. It's that it's not just to hold on tight because the Yemei HaSinna will pass. It's that we can use the Yemei HaSinna too. We can learn not only where we're weak, but as Rav Tzadok HaKohen and others say, and Rav Shor says this, and Alex says as well, it's stop with those places where we can actually become the strongest. The thing that we need to work on most is also our greatest potential for greatness when we can turn it around. Not always easy. But the main point I want to leave you with is this resilience insight about Rabbi Kiva and Lag Bomer. That to me is a game changer. You'll never experience Lag Bomer the same again. You're welcome. But number, but number two is it's not only about Rabbi Kiva and Lag Bomer. And it's not only about God forbid Rahman al-Sani, the real challenges we have in life. Although it should be help us for those two. But it's also for the day in, day out challenges. The small stuff. Which in many ways is more important to overcome than the Pam B. Super good or the opposite experiences in life. It's the daily stuff where the little ups and downs, which if we, can't, if we master those, we're talking about an incredibly happy and successful life. And when they, when they master us, it'll be a very depressing and unsuccessful life. So I think that this is you know, really powerful stuff, and I think this is really the fire of Lag Omer that hopefully we can take with us.